please turn your Bibles to James chapter 1. Um, today, we kick off our annual vision series. I don't know how you feel about that. There's not quite enough people in the room to get much rah-rah today. I don't know, but I'll, I'll live off the very little that I can get. Jaron, you're in the second row. I feel like you should move up to the first just to help me a little bit. Can I ask that of you? Can I, can I put that request on you? Thank you. All right. And you can't even smile at me because it's meaningless with the mask, but hey, I'll take what I can get. Um, But today we kick off our annual vision series, which is less of an attempt to articulate our vision for Bridgetown Church in the year ahead. It is that, but it's more of a kind of annual attempt to articulate Jesus' vision for what it means to apprentice under him, or in other language, to be a disciple of Jesus, not just a Christian. That's more of an American kind of cultural word. It's not really a New Testament word, but to apprentice under Jesus into life of the kingdom, which, as Bethany just said, we define as a life organized around three very basic goals. Number one, be with Jesus. Number two, become like Jesus, or what most people mean by spiritual formation. And number three, do what he did, or a more specific way to say that is do what he would do if he were you in your time and in your place. And so most years I stand up here and I give the same sermon every single September and I attempt to make it a little bit new, but whatever. But not this year. Um, 2020 is just not a normal year. Again, if you're new to our community online or whatever, we would invite you to go back or ask you to go back and listen to a previous year's vision series or go back to the beginning of the Practicing the Way kind of teaching series and listen through that paradigm or vision. But really, this year is a bit different. It's just our attempt to articulate the spiritual direction for our church, meaning just what's our best sense of the, as leaders and as kind of core community, of the invitations of the Spirit of God to us as individuals, but really to us as a church in the year ahead. So the next few weeks are just kind of a few pastoral words that we hope and pray are poignant for the season to come, however long that season is. All right, turn to James chapter one and give me a few minutes to get there. Do you all know what the leading cause of death for people under the age of 50 is in Oregon in 2020. It is not COVID-19, contrary to what you might think. It is not cancer, which in a normal year is at the top of the list, or heart disease, it is death by suicide. There has been a massive spike in the last seven months. It's way up. In fact, more people have died from suicide across all age categories than the 500 plus who have died from COVID-19 in our state. And I say that not to shock you, but just to call out the obvious, the elephant in the room. People are in pain due to the cascade effect of living through a global pandemic, as if that was all we were dealing with right now, followed by an economic disaster, followed by over 100 days straight of strife between protesters and police, which only ended and only for a little while because it was followed by a once in a generation cascade effect of wildfires that shut down our entire state, shut us indoors for almost two weeks, followed by more social unrest over the grand jury's decision a few days ago. And oh, by the way, our election is coming. And our nation is, sociologists, this is not like an opinion, they have actually done the data, is more divided than it has been since the Civil War. For those of you that were into theology in the 1990s, dating myself here, the debate over pre-trib versus post-trib is officially over. It's post-trib. We are living through the Great Tribulation. That's all I have to say. But there is, on a serious note, so much pain and suffering. But a number of thinkers actually distinguish between pain and suffering. Pain is what is. It's a global pandemic, it's a disease, it's death, it's racism, it's you fill in the blank. Suffering is the meaning that we make of it, or put another way, our response to what is. By that definition, all animals experience pain, but suffering is unique to human beings. And for a lot of people, the result of suffering is trauma, a kind of deep emotional wound that we carry in our body in perpetuity. But there's a fascinating idea that was developed by the psychologists Richard Tedeschi and Lawrence Calhoun in the mid-90s called post-traumatic growth. 
The basic idea, and it's based on all sorts of research, is that some people, not all, not even the majority, but some people seem to grow as a result of trauma. Quote, people develop new understandings of themselves, the world they live in, how to relate to other people, the kind of future they might have, and a better understanding of how to live. Together, they developed the post-traumatic growth inventory, which was and still is an attempt to measure pain and suffering's effect on our growth in five specific areas. Number one, appreciation for life. Number two, relationships with others. Number three, new possibilities in life. Number four, personal strength. And number five, spiritual change. The data is in. All five areas are ripe for growth in a year like 2020. 2020 literally has the potential to make us or break us, to produce trauma that we carry in our body until the day we die, or post-traumatic growth. And much of it has to do with our response, the meaning we make of it, and our relationships, more in relationships in a bit. And listen, we just don't know how much longer this will last. I think we were all hoping, I was, maybe it was magical thinking, okay, for sure it was magical thinking, but that it would all kind of start to go back to normal by the fall, and you know, surely by the fall, like restaurants would open back up, or whatever it is, and here we are on a live stream with a mask on at church, and like if you get too close, you don't get a hug, you get like a rebuke in the name of Jesus, or whatever. Right? And, you know, according to the president, we are a few weeks away from a vaccine. Other optimists say by the end of the year. Most experts say, in theory, sometime in the winter, and then we don't know how long it will take to roll it out after that. And whatever you think about vaccines, we can all agree that our, our country will not go back to any version of normal until there is one. A few weeks ago, both Fauci and Bill Gates of conspiracy theory fame, I love the dude, but whatever, he said, they both said, whether it works, whether the vaccine works well, or not, and whether all of us take it or not, life will go back to normal, or version of normal, by the end of 2021. But first off, that's an educated guess. It's not an exact science. And secondly, that's over a year away. Like, that is a long time to not sit down at heart coffee. I mean, the suffering of this year, for me, has been intense. No, um, that, is, that is not, that's not close. And we're already seven months in. So here's the question. How do we not just survive the coming season, whether it's a month or two or a year or two, however long it is, how do we not just survive as a church, as disciples of Jesus, in our marriage, in our Bridgetown community, in our work, but how do we even come out the other side of a global pandemic plus with a whole new level of maturity, with kind of that post-traumatic growth, with appreciation for life and new possibilities and spiritual change, that list. And is there a way, and maybe this is audacious, but is there a way to even travel the road together with joy? For an answer, we turn to James chapter one. You know, there's a line in the New Testament from Paul, quote, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness or right living and right relationships is a way to interpret that. As we read scripture, it reads us. As we interpret the scripture, it interprets us. As we make sense of what God was saying to them then, it makes sense of what God is saying to us now. Because what we're about to read is not just a first century letter, it is scripture, or in more traditional language, it is the word of God. Read with me James chapter one, verse one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. 
The letter before us was written by James, most likely James, the brother of Jesus that we read about in the four gospels. Most scholars date the letter to the 60s AD, right after a wave of persecution scattered the church in Jerusalem, kind of not only all over Israel, but all over the Mediterranean, as followers of Jesus were forced to either die or go into prison or kind of run to another country or another city to escape death. The word scattered is diaspora in Greek, where we get the word diaspora, and it's used in Acts chapter eight. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered, there's the word, throughout Judea and Samaria. Those who had been scattered, same word as James one, preached the word wherever they went, meaning persecution made them go where pleasure would not. So first, James is writing a letter because they are no longer together as a church. And in a pre-digital world with no internet and live stream, a letter was your best option. He's also writing to a church that is scattered, that is no longer together. He's writing to a church that is facing trials of many kinds, not just one trial, but multiple, like a multi-layer trials. And to a church that is most likely, if you read the subtext, not happy about it at all. Does any of that sound familiar to you? Or does this sound like maybe scripture is still helpful in our world? Let's piece apart James' opening word to the church in verses two, three, and four, kind of one line at a time. The first word is consider it pure joy, consider. In Greek, it's hegeomai, and it can also be translated count it all joy. The idea is, around all of you accountants watching, I am not one of you, I barely made it through math in college, but we're, we're grateful for you. The idea is to run a mathematical calculation on your trials, to sort all of the data of your life into kind of two columns, a loss column and a profit column. And the idea is that if and when you value what God values, you will realize that the result of trials is a net profit, not a loss. I don't know about you, but I label most of 2020 as a loss, not a profit. We have all lost so much. Some of you have lost people that you love, family and friends to a disease. Many of you have lost your job or a small business or a dream or your plan for the year or your plan for the next five years. You've lost a lot, lost opportunity or something as simple as your favorite restaurant. We've all lost freedom. We've all lost the ability to gather together as a church or even with our community. We can't even do house church really without breaking the rules, right? Even around the simple thing to every Tuesday night, like sit down and break bread and pour a bottle of wine and remember Jesus together around a table. We have lost so much. But what's easy to forget, and myself included, is all that is now in the gain category. And more on that in a minute. But pain has the potential to give us far more than it takes away. James is saying, do the math, add it all up. There is more profit than loss. And therefore, the logical conclusion, again, you accountants in the room ahead of us here, is joy. Like um, the, the idea here, and there's a little bit of a humor kind of in the subtext, is like throw a party. Invite all your friends, like, you know, open a bottle of wine on Zoom. Throw a Zoom party. It's so much fun. We all love it, right? But like count it all, like literally throw a party. Count it all joy. Not just joy, but quote, pure joy. Pure as in not mixed, not one part joy, but three parts sorrow, but pure joy. Now, the joy that James is getting at here is a far cry from the American pursuit of happiness. It's the joy of Jesus who said, quote, that my joy, he has his own joy, may be in you. His own joy is in us as his disciples, and that your joy may be complete, or some translations have full. The imagery is of a cup that is all the way to the top. You ever feel like just so much joy in you? Feel like you have to laugh or shout or dance, or I don't dance, but if you're a if you're that person, whatever, you just have to move your, something It has to like leak out of you. That's the idea that your joy may be complete or full. Charlie Dates from Chicago in his sermon on James 1 said this, God has a corresponding joy for every trial we find ourselves in. This joy that we have, the world did not give it to us and the world cannot take it away. Circumstances did not give us this joy, so circumstances cannot take it away. God has a joy that defies our trials. Consider it pure joy when, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Note, whenever, 
not if. When, not if. Trials will come. As Job put it, man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. Or in the language of Jesus himself, in this world, you will have trouble. Trouble is the rule. Ease is the exception to the rule. That sounds harsh, but acceptance of the fact that life is hard is not only the path to maturity, it is also the path to joy. As M. Scott Peck writes on the opening page of The Road Less Traveled, when you expect life to be easy, it is very hard. Right? Have you heard that? Uh, I forget the name of the sociologist, but his formula for happiness is reality minus expectations. <laughs> right? So when you expect life to be easy, it is at, a, at an emotional level, it is very hard. But when you expect it to be hard in an ironic twist, it's very good. Most of us conclude it's a net positive. In fact, more than that, it's a wonder and an awe and a gift from God. So it's when, not if, whenever you face Trials. Now, the word face here can also be translated fall into, or more literally, it's trip over. It's a word picture. You're just walking along and you trip. Something I know all about. My feet are gigantic. They've been this big since I was in fifth grade. There's a reason that I don't play sports. I am just a disaster walking around, right? So I know what it is like. You're walking along and you trip and you fall. Lots of personal experience. One Greek lexicon defines the word as, quote, to experience somewhat suddenly that which is difficult or bad. You don't plan a year like 2020. You fall into it. You fall into trials. Now, the word here is parasmos. It can be translated trial or test or temptation. It's also the Greek word that we translate disaster or, wait for it, plague. In fact, whenever you read the word plague in the New Testament, you are most likely reading the same word, parasmos. Again, almost like the Bible is relevant. <laughs> Trials, parasmos, plagues, disasters, temptations of many kinds. The word many is literally multicolored. Other translations have various kinds. Major, minor, political, personal, economic, emotional, you fill in the blank. The various trials, the manifold trials that make up life on this side of Eden where sin is still in our body and in the systems of our society. From your car breaking down to, you know, for me a few mornings ago after a long day at work waking up with a, like a really bad kink in the neck that is still not all the way gone to the loss of a friend or a family member to a vicious disease and everything in between all of them, when we fall in, consider it pure joy. Now just stop there for a minute before we go on and think about what he's saying. Whenever like, you trip over any kind of trial, whatever the size of it, something that you did not plan for, it's not in your agenda for allowing your vision or in your five-year plan or whatever, something that you hate that is the cause of pain or even suffering in your life, his word to you and to me as disciples of Jesus is consider it pure joy. For those in the room or watching online who are hurting right now, you are feeling the acute pain whether it's of Thursday's verdict or just the last few months or the loss of your job or fear over the election or division in your family or whatever it is, and you're thinking, consider it pure joy. Why in the world would I do that? Because of verse three, he goes on, look down again. You know, and the word there is gnosko, it's not head knowledge, but personal experience knowledge. Meaning you know, based on personal experience, that the testing of your faith, the word testing here means to, quote, try to learn the genuineness of something by examination and testing, often through actual use. So don't think of a test, Jude, my now high school son is out here. Jude, don't think of a test in high school where you get the right answer or the wrong answer or Hopefully it's multiple choice. You at least have a 25% chance, right? Not that kind of a test. Think of, the best analogy I can think of is like, um, so my favorite car is a Land Rover Defender. Can we just agree it's the best, not to masculine stereotype, but it's the most masculine car ever made, right? And uh, years ago, I had a vintage one from 1967, long story. They're about to release a new model in tandem with the upcoming James Bond film. And every time they release a new Defender, they test it. 
meaning the engineers and advertisers from Land Rover make all sorts of claims about the vehicle. It can go this far over this kind of terrain. It can take this kind of pressure or whatever. But then they give it to a test driver and a film crew, and they just go out into the wilderness, and they beat the crud out of it. They run it through sand and gravel. They literally drive it through mud, through a river, up a mountain. They turn it over. They roll it. They jump it. They bump it. They just push it to the limit to test it, to see does it actually have the capacity to do what its maker says it has the capacity to do or is it just hype? What a field test is to an off-road vehicle, trials are to a disciple of Jesus. Trials are a test of what? Of our faith. The word faith here is pistis, and a lot of English speakers confuse the word faith with the word belief. They're two very different words and even different concepts in Greek. And a lot of us don't realize that pistis can either be translated faith or another just as if not more valid translation into English is faithfulness. Belief has to do with our level of trust in and reliance on God. Faith has to do with how long we can hold on to that trust and reliance on God through trials. Faith in God is faithfulness to God no matter what comes. And that is what is being put to the test right now for you, for me, for our church, for the church and our country and beyond. Do we trust Jesus enough to stay faithful to him and his way and his church through 2020 and beyond, or will we throw in the towel, quit, and call it a day? Hence the next line. The testing of your faith produces or it causes, it's the origin or the, the beginning of perseverance. Okay, now we're getting to the good part. The word perseverance is hypomone in Greek. Can you say hypomone? Hypomone. Well done. Nice to hear that again. Depending on if you read the NIV or the ESV or another version, it's either translated perseverance or endurance or steadfastness. One lexicon defines it as the capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. It means to stay to remain, to continue when you are under pressure. It's a kind of emotional resilience, a kind of inner strength of will, a capacity to live and love when the wind of circumstances is all against you. But also has this subtext of hope. So it's not just like a grinding it out for Jesus. Hope, as we said back in the spring, is about the future, but it's for the present. Remember, we defined hope as the expectation of coming good based on the person and promises of God. And while hope does have a future orientation, the nature of hope is a kind of energy to live well in the here and now. And that's what trials have the potential to produce in us, a hopeful energy to keep going, a doggedness in joy when life is hard. James goes on, let perseverance finish its work. I love Eugene Peterson's translation in the message. Don't try to get out of anything prematurely. What a great word, prematurely, as in before you mature through it. Next line, verse four, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, there's a play on words here in the Greek that we miss in the English translation. The word finish is the verb form, and the word mature is the noun form of the same Greek word telos. More literally, it's let perseverance mature you so that you become mature. The word telos is where we get the idea in philosophy of a telos, or the end goal of someone or something. The telos of an apprentice of Jesus is, one way to say it, is maturity. It's what we call Christ-likeness, what ancient disciples of Jesus and the Eastern Orthodox tradition still to this day called theosis, which translates into English as either deification or more often as godliness or godlikeness. It's becoming like God through union with God. It is a combination of emotional maturity and spiritual life to the point where love and joy and peace and the inner life of the Trinity itself just become your true nature and flow through you to the world. 
And the word complete, that second word, is a Greek word meaning whole. Hence the next line, another kind of play on words, not lacking or deficient or missing anything. The idea is that prior to your, quote, various trials, you were missing something, but your pain and your suffering, again, has not subtracted from you as much as it has added to you, and now you are whole, you are well-developed, you're not missing anything. You have all you need to live with Jesus in the kingdom. You are mature. Now, what is the link between perseverance and maturity? Well, as you all know, you don't think your way into maturity. If only it was like as easy as listen to this podcast series and read these four books, and now you're mature, right? You don't even feel your way into maturity. You persevere your way into maturity. Maturity is the result of what Nietzsche called a long obedience in the same direction. What a great phrase, a long obedience in the same direction is the cumulative effect of a lifetime of obedience to God through prayer over years of various trials. Now, a few thoughts for the year ahead based on the text we just read and kind of our life together as a church. The whole world is going through COVID-19 and all that comes with it, not just our city and not just our church. Very few people I know are happy about it except maybe a few shareholders at Zoom. Why should we be any different? Three reasons. One, because we are a part of the family of God and we live by a whole other vision of life and value system. In my exegesis, I skipped over one word in verse two, Adelphoi, which is translated in NIV as brothers and sisters. It means more literally siblings. James' call is to consider it pure joy. That call was not written to all people. That's not a word for America or a word for Portland. That is a word for the family of God, for brothers and sisters under God the Father. The joy he's writing about does not make any sense at all unless you are a follower of Jesus, not because we are better than anyone around us who is secular or Muslim or Buddhist or whatever, but because we live by a very different worldview and system of meaning than the secular city we call home. Tim Keller in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, has a great section on kind of the five major worldviews, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, animist, and secular, and he makes a very compelling case that the secular Western worldview is the least equipped to deal well with pain and suffering because it has no meaning to assign to it. In a Darwinian materialist worldview, there is no meaning or purpose to life in general beyond survival of the fittest. Life just is, as Malcolm said, life finds a way. It's just an accident. Now, of course, the human brain literally can't live without meaning. We have to make meaning at a neurobiological level, religious or not. Well, we're all religious or not, Christian or not. Philosophers talk about discovered meaning versus developed meaning. Discovered meaning is meaning that comes from outside yourself, that is transcendent. For us as followers of Jesus, we discover the meaning and purpose of our life in the life and teachings of Jesus, in scripture and through prayer with the inner life of the Trinity that we call God. But our secular friends, many of whom are wonderful people at a coherent worldview level, don't believe in discovered meaning, so they have to default to developed meaning. Because again, we have to have a meaning to live. Developed meaning is meaning that you self-generate based on your own inner sense of self, your opinions, your desires and likes and dislikes. Your meaning might be, you know, Steve Jobs to make a dent in the universe or you know, Elon Musk to make humans into an interplanetary species, or it might be a little bit more modest, like I just wanna retire early and eat and drink all the time, or whatever it is. It might be your family, it might be your career, it might be fame, it might be to change your industry, it might be to invent something, it might be social justice. It could be any number of things that you self-generate, but it comes from inside you, not outside you, and it's not transcendent. But for most people in our city, the default meaning of life, our city's not a careerist city, it's not a celebrity city. For most people in our city, the default meaning of life beyond survival is pleasure. Or in more American language, it is the pursuit of happiness. For most people, how often do you hear, well, we just, I just wanna be happy, right? Or I just, that's for most of us in our city is the meaning of life. But inside a secular worldview, and here's where this is coming together, where for most people, happiness is the default meaning of life. At best, suffering is an interruption to the meaning of life. 
If not, in the case of a problem that you can't fix, like death or a disease that does not go away, a permanent blockage to happiness and the meaning of life. Willamette Weekly's current edition, I don't know if any of you read that over the last few days, it's entitled 2020, Everyone is Struggling with Mental Health, Here's Our Guide to Finding Peace. Now, the last place I would ever look for wisdom about finding peace is the Willamette Weekly. If you're a Portlander, you know what I'm talking about. But I read it just for that. I read it on a regular basis just to stay in tune with our city. And it's full of practical advice on finding peace, a lot of great ideas from, you know, the, the usual suspects, mindfulness, therapy, lemon juice for breakfast, of course, yoga, exercise, walking in the grass first thing in the morning, that was nice. There's actually science behind that. Two, there was an entire article on psychedelic mushrooms. Welcome to Portland. And there was another entire article on why you should eat mac and cheese at 2 a.m. in a pro-quarantine 15 case, right? But there, and there's some great stuff in there. I'm not joking, it was, it was there. But there was nothing about finding meaning and purpose through it, nothing about growth as a person into maturity through it, and not a word about living in community and relationship through it. Nothing. Here's how you balance your chi. Here's how you start your morning. Here's the right diet. Here's the right drug or mushroom or pot place or whatever. Nothing but how we live through this with meaning, purpose, grow, mature, and stay together in relationship. Again, that's not to say we're better than anyone else. It's just to say, listen, as followers of Jesus, we live by a very different worldview than the Willamette Weekly, than our city, by a whole other vision for what life is about. Hence, James called to do a little math. You know, there's a saying in the business world, what gets measured gets valued. When what you measure and value is pleasure, 2020 is a colossal loss. But when what you measure and value are things like maturity and relationships, in the worldview of the New Testament, where the most important thing is the person you become and the relationships you engender over a lifetime. You are first and foremost a relational soul, not just a pleasure machine in a body. Right, The most important thing in life is who you become and who you become that person with. In that value system, 2020 has the potential to come out as a net gain. In fact, to launch us forward into what really matters. So one, because we're family. We live by a whole other vision of life. Two, because we are not alone. Again, brothers and sisters, we're family. We're in it together. Even the word you is plural in Greek. Bethany, we, just, we need more of this, right? The more accurate translation is y'all. When you all face trials, many trials. 2020 has been traumatic for so many, but psychologists tell us that trauma is what happens when people experience suffering alone. The therapist Robert Stolaro writes this Trauma is when severe emotional pain cannot find a relational home in which it can be held. When we experience pain and suffering, we need a relational home, a community, a people around us. We need to be held for people just not to fix our problems, to sit with us in and through our problems. We don't need a pep talk. We don't need a list of to-dos. I mean, well, some of us do, but what we need at a core level is to be held by one another in love as family. Years ago, the social psychologist James Pennebraker conducted the first ever large-scale study of trauma survivors, and his goal was to determine why some people experience pain and suffering and trauma and are devastated, and others experience the same or a very similar form of trauma, but seem to not only come through it, but actually are, and make a full recovery at an emotional level, but are actually more joyful and at ease than they were before, that post-traumatic growth kind of idea. His hypothesis at the beginning of the study was that trauma for which there was a social stigma was harder to recover from. So specifically, he and his team looked at sexual assault, and suicide of a spouse, right? Can you imagine, just many of you can't imagine, that has been your personal experience. But in his book, Opening Up, he writes about how their hypothesis was way off. There was literally zero data to back up their hypothesis. There was zero correlation between the nature of the trauma and a recovery. The number one factor in recovery was whether or not a person had a family or a friend or some kind of a support group to talk about and process their pain with. It's that simple. 
There's no ninja rocket science stuff. Did you have somebody, a relational home, somebody to hold you? Those who did, overwhelming number were spared any long-term negative effects. We have a relational home in the church, in our Bridgetown community, in one another, and we need to function as that relational home for each other. And last, because God is at work in us to give us far more than we lose. Listen, in our theological paradigm here, which we offer in humility, suffering is rarely, if ever, from God, but it is almost always used by God if we consent to his work in our soul. We ask the question, why? Why COVID-19? Why a pandemic? Why racism? Why my pain? Why my unemployment? It's the wrong question. And there's not really a good answer to that, no matter who you talk to. It's what, God? What do you want to grow and mature in me and through our pain? Notice again the language in verse four. Let perseverance finish its work in you. The language is passive, not active. Growing into maturity is less something we do and more something we let God do to us more than anything through our trials. Our part is to not give up and to just let God have his way in us. This is why, as the saying goes, not all people mature with age. We could all tell stories about that. But nobody matures without aging. I would go so far as to say nobody matures without some measure of pain and suffering. Think back to our practice and teaching series on naming your stage of apprenticeship and our teaching on active and passive spirituality, which is ancient language, not late modern language. Jean-Pierre de Cassade, the 17th century French Jesuit, put it this way, would to God, I just keep coming back to this over the last few weeks, would to God that all men, all people could know how very easy it would be for them to arrive at a high degree of sanctity or maturity or Christ-likeness, just to grow, right? They would only have to fulfill the simple duties of Christianity, meaning practice the way of Jesus, like basic parent, wake up in the morning, read scripture, pray, gather with your church, live in community, kind of live, live out the New Testament, basic stuff. And of their state of life, you got young children at home or you're single or an empty nester or you're in the midlife and you're exhausted or whatever, just to embrace with submission the crosses belonging to that state, right? Waking up in the middle of the night with your two-year-old or again, the exhaustion of midlife or the loneliness of singleness or the disappointment of the second half of life, whatever the crosses of your state are and to submit with faith and love to the designs of providence with a capital P, God's work in it. The passive part, there's our language, of sanctity is still more easy since it only consists in accepting that which we very often have no power to prevent. We can't stop 2020, we can't stop a pandemic, we can't stop a global disease that we have no power to prevent. And in suffering lovingly, that is to say with sweetness and consolation, those things that too often cause weariness and disgust. Once more, I repeat, in this consists sanctity. Put another way, this is how we grow and mature. By suffering lovingly that which we cannot even change. Now, how does this work? Well, think of our working theory of change what we call our intentional spiritual formation paradigm that our entire church is built around. If you've been through a previous year's vision series, I've taught through this piece by piece at the beginning of practicing the way for two months, you know, two months of teaching in 10 seconds. We are formed, think of the language of spiritual formation, through truth or through teaching of truth, through practice or the practices as we habituate truth into our body, through community, relationships with other followers of Jesus, our relational home, and above all, by the Holy Spirit, through attachment love from and to the Holy Spirit. This happens over time and based on how much time we give to God in prayer and through, in the language of the great theologian Jay-Z, the hard knocks of life or put another way, through pain and suffering. Now, what role does pain and suffering play? Well, as I understand it, the primary effect of suffering on our spiritual formation is to set us free from our attachments. 
Again, by attachments, all I mean by that is the things we think we need to live a happy life, what Thomas Keating called our emotional programs for happiness, what our Calvinist brothers and sisters call our idols. Suffering has a way not only of revealing our idols and attachments, but of stripping them away and as a result, setting us free. Meaning if our happiness is attached to our job or our income or our health or our relationship status, if and when any of that is stripped away, it is emotionally excruciating. Can I get a witness on that? But it also has the potential to set us free because our attachments are what hold us back from life in God. As the psychiatrist and spiritual director Gerald May put it, we want to be free, compassionate, and happy. Anybody else in the room? Like, that's it. That's all I really want out of life. But in the face of our attachments, we are clinging, grasping, and fearfully self-absorbed. This is the root of our trouble. This is the root of sin in our body and our life. This is the root of what Jesus died and came back from the dead to set us free from. And there has never been a time in our life as a church with more potential to set us free from our attachments, even our attachment to church itself. But for that to happen, we have to consent to the work of the Spirit in us. Let perseverance finish its work. God is at work in you right now. I know it. God's at work in me. God is at work in us and in our church. Satan's at work too, but God is at work. You know, a month or two ago, um, I went out to Savi Island to a beach, not that beach at Savi Island. Don't worry, <laughs> another one. And, uh, all you Portlanders, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went out for a day of prayer, not anything else. And uh, I, I was, you know, just journaling and thinking through the question, just what, God, what is it that you are trying to do in me through this hell of a year? And this has been for me the most difficult year of my leadership, hands down, in 20 years, just brutal for my soul. God, what are you trying to do? And just asking in order to like consent to and even cooperate to the best of my ability with God's work in my soul. And it became really clear to me there were at least five things that God was trying to do in my life through 2020. Um, develop emotional resilience in me as a leader. I'm way too sensitive and melancholy. To strip me of my kind of emotional felt need for control and certainty and planning. All of that is out the window. I can't plan anything right now. I'm just so out of control. It's ridiculous. This recovering control freak is like being burned clean, Right. Three, purify my motivation for the work I do. When you're a pastor, it's easier maybe than any other work to do the right thing for the wrong reason. Motivated not by love, but by ego or any you know, fear, more than anything for me, fear, need for any, any number of devious things. I don't wanna tell you what they are because you would all sign off right now. But um, I felt months ago the Spirit say to me, the motivation must be love. Um, my work right now is just, in all, not to sound weird, but it's just not fun at all. And so this is a great opportunity for me to let God terraform my motivation from ego to love. Four, set me free from the need for other people to think I'm good. Like I, like if you know my personal psychosis, I just really wanna be a good person and a good leader. And in this moment of political polarization and divide and the wide array of opinions about everything from vaccines to masks to church gatherings, there is no possible route through the next year where nobody is mad at me. <laughs> they're, they're, no matter what I say or do, legitimate or illegitimate, I will get lots of angry emails in my inbox, right? That's just my life. But what a gift if this could set me free from the tyranny of other people opinions. And finally, just I cultivate a capacity for hope. My hope muscle, in all, in all honesty, and those of you that know me well, I'm not a very hopeful person. I'm a realist, also known as cynical. And so, like, this is a, this is a virtue. Hope is a virtue. It's not a feeling that God is at work to grow in me. Now, I'm sure there is way more that God is trying to do in my soul that I'm unaware of, but if I were, but that's just what I'm aware of, and that's for me, that's not for you, I say that to say, it, what if, if for me, if I were to come out of 2020, whether it's in January or much later, with a new emotional resilience and ease and freedom in life and I don't know what's gonna happen, like the capacity for holy uncertainty, full of hope, motivated by love more than anything else, able to do to the best of my ability what I think is the right thing no matter what comes, like that would be a gain in my life, not a loss. 
I would look back. I, I have a mentor who is almost the exact same personality as me um, through multiple personality differentials or personality theories. And I asked him recently, but if you were to meet him, you would not think that because he's way awesomer than I am. He's just so mature and calm and unhurried and present to his body and wise and compassionate. And I said to him, like, all right, on paper, we're the same person, but we are not the same person. How did you become you? You know, and the subtext there is how do I become more like you? How do I mature? And he said, oh, it was through the two worst moments in my entire life. And he told me two stories, separated by two decades, of just when his life fell apart. And both of them were the turning point in his life that made him who he is today. This has the potential. 20 years from now, when I'm 70-something, not 20 years from now, 30-something years from now, when I'm in my 70s and somebody were to ask me, how did you become so awesome? I don't know if that will ever happen, but I'm praying for it like to tell the story of 2020. Now, this is, that's my example. You would have your own. That's just to spark your imagination. What is God trying to do in you, in your spiritual formation, in your soul, in your marriage or family or singleness or sexuality or whatever, your work, your calling? Where is God calling you up to a new level of maturity? and completeness? What are you missing that God is trying to add into your life? Can you see it? Can you discern it? Can you get a vision of it? Can you identify what God is trying to work in your soul in order to give God your consent and to cooperate with the Spirit, not around you, but in you? If so, if you can get to that spot, and I would encourage you, just do that little journaling exercise over the next few weeks. Like, just go somewhere quiet, get up early, whatever it is. Sit down with a piece of paper and just see. Just listen to God. Open your mind and imagination to the Spirit and and listen to your own heart and see if you can discern, this is what I think God is trying to do. It might be one thing, might be 10, but what is God trying to do? Once you get there, if you can, I think there are three invitations from God in the text for our church and for me and for you. One is just to consider it pure joy. Or better said, reconsider it pure joy. Rethink 2020 as pure joy and thank God. Open a bottle of wine if that's your thing and celebrate. Two, let perseverance finish its work, meaning don't quit, don't bail, don't just sign into Netflix for another hour persevere in practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland. And finally, because we miss it in English, stay together. Stay with your church, stay with your community, stay with your family, stay in your marriage, live in a thick web of interdependent relationships that flies in the face of the individualism of our city that is wreaking havoc across our nation. Much of what we're experiencing right now is the fallout of individualism and autonomy in the West. Stay even when it's hard. Stay through the mess, the disappointment, the hurt, the anger when you want to not forgive and cut people off and label people. Stay. Even with the challenge of social distancing, to move toward relationship is the goal not away from it, and to push for depth. I think of Tom Muehlhoff has, you know, the five levels of communication. Level one, cliche, how's it going? Fine. Level two, facts, what did you do today? Level three, opinions, who do you think is going to win the election or whatever? Level four, feelings, where you share how you are. And level five, bedrock transparency, where you share who you are. Push down, pack, how you doing? What did you do this week? What do you think about that? Da, 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 da. Push down to feelings and transparency. Every day when I get off work, uh, my lovely wife T and I have been doing this new ritual. Where we, if we have time before we make dinner, we sit down and I ask her, give me three feeling words. And she literally has a sheet from her therapist that has like all these emotion words on it or whatever. And we've been in couples therapy. And so she pulls out her sheet sometimes and she'll, look at it after a crazy day and say, uh, bewildered and hopeful and scared or whatever the words are for that day. Now tell me why. And then we go, now she's doing it to me. And I'm like, I don't, okay, whatever. Um, and tell me, give me three feeling words. And that's just an attempt to skip past like, what deal did you get at the grocery store or how did, you know, whatever go today to how are you and who are you and an attempt to guide our emotional pain into a relational home. 
Stay with each other. If you're not in a Bridgetown community or a Bridgetown triad, sign up for basics. It's next Sunday. Do not miss it. If you are in one, re-engage as we move forward into the fall. Find some kind of a plan to stay together for the year ahead. Now, to end, listen, all of this stuff, and I know I said a lot, it's very easy to teach. It is very hard to live. This word is from Scripture, and it is as much for me as it is for you. But James' call to persevere with joy under trial is based in our apprenticeship to his older brother, Jesus, who did the same for us in love. To end, let me read Hebrews 12 over you, where the author of Hebrews uses the exact same Greek word, hypomone. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all these followers of Jesus who've gone before us for thousands of years, Jesus and Paul and Abraham and Moses and Esther and Ruth and Joan of Arc and St. Teresa and St. John of the Cross and Ignatius of Loyola and Dr. King, all of them are around us. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with hypomone, perseverance, the race marked out for us. This is the race. This is the marathon ahead of us. Fixing our eyes, not on Washington, D.C., not on your political party, not on your politician, not on news and the vaccine, not fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith and faithfulness. For the joy that was set before him, he, hypomone, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And then to us, endure, hypomone, hardship, as discipline or as training, as formation. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. We are to endure hardship because Jesus endured hardship for us. He endured controversy and rejection and pushback and slander and lies and hostility and persecution. And finally, as we read in the Gospels, arrest and imprisonment and false charges and a corrupt court and a rigged jury and torture and humiliation and then pain of death by crucifixion, the most ignoble and brutal and barbaric way to die in his world, all for the joy that was set before him. And scholars debate what that joy is. Some say it's the pleasure and the will of the Father. Others say it's the resurrection and the kingdom of God. Some say it is you and it is me. The joy, life with us in the Father's house as a family forever. We are to endure a much less serious trial than the cross for the joy set before us and our life with